Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact, she has a tattoo on her body that says fear less with a capital L and the life she has lived and the way she approaches her work. In fact, the way she approaches everything is so filled with love and fearlessness and creativity. It's an honor to have Ariana DeVos on the podcast today. Okay. Ariana DeVos, I cannot believe we have finally made this happen. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. My God, thank you so much for having me. It's I've been looking forward to it for years. You have no idea. Oh, God. <laughs> well, same. Um, for my listeners, uh, the guest that you are hearing from today has starred in six Broadway shows. I'm going to name them. I am not looking at a piece of paper, so if I get them out of order, you correct me. But as I recall, uh, Bring It On, Motown, Pippin, Hamilton, uh, Bronx Tale, and uh, the show for which you were Tony nominated, Summer. Is that right? Did I forget anything? No, that's it. In the quick order, too. <laughs> okay. Because you popped up in my headphones and my my little cheat sheet is in the other room. And I was like, I can do this. I know I can do it. I've left her that long. Um, and then she has two incredible films coming out. Um, West Side Story, the film directed by Steven Spielberg. And The Prom, directed by Ryan Murphy, which is an adaptation of the Broadway musical by the same name. And I think, uh, as far as I know, these are like the big moments we might want to try to hit in this conversation. Um, but mostly this is going to be uh, just a love letter to you, a woman whose work I've admired on stage and off for so many years. So where are you today as we have this conversation physically? I am physically in North Carolina, actually. I am, I am home. I'm a native North Carolinian, uh, but I'm with my grandmother spending some time. Uh, she was suffering from pancreatic cancer a couple of years ago, and uh, she's since been deemed cancer-free. But, um, but, you know, time is such a luxury. And while we, whilst we are in a pandemic, um, I have the benefit of being able to spend some valuable and much needed time with her. So that's where I am. Oh, that's beautiful. When, when Corona sort of hit and became the pandemic as we know it, were you working on something at that time that shut down because of the virus? Yes, I was working on the prom. I was in LA working on the prom with Ryan and, and the gang. Um, and when you say the gang, throw out a couple of names for our listeners at home who you are co-starring with. Oh, uh, Nicole Kidman. Nope. Never heard of her. Next. Never heard of her. Um, <laughs> I'll IMDB her. Yep. Oh, man. You need a book. I, swear. I do. Um, uh, James Corden, uh, Carrie Washington. Uh, and Miss Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... um Some rookies. Yeah. 
some, so some newbies. They're all really new to the game, and it's practically an indie film. We're not sure um, anything. But, so uh, <laughs> let's just start here because there's so much to cover. But how did this part come to you, and what is it like shooting a Ryan Murphy musical? with a star-studded cast that you are front and center in and with? Wow. Um, You know, (laughs) it's insane. So I had seen The Prom on Broadway, and I saw it with my best friend from high school, who was my prom date, fascinatingly enough, and um, cried my way through it. I laughed. I cried. I was moved. I was angered. I I felt all the feelings, and and Mm -hmm. I fell in love with every single person on that stage and I'm fortunate enough to to know many of them. Um, and I left just thinking, wow, this is such a brilliant piece. And then two weeks later, I kid you not, I got an email asking me to come in for an audition. Mind you, I was still working on West Side Story. I was filming West Side Story at the time. And I had didn't have anything really on my radar as far as work after West Side because I was just thinking, great, now I get to sit down and rest my legs. Um, Literally, literally down for a minute. I just, uh, you know, I was actually looking forward to a vacation. And then that email came through and I was like, you know what, just go, just say yes. Um, That's the best advice I've ever been given was to just keep saying yes. So I did, I went in had a interesting first session. In fact, I thought I there was no way in the world I was going to get the job. I was like this is terrible. I was terrible. I don't understand why am I an actor? And um oh, that's such a good feeling, isn't it? Oh, it's you know, interesting. <laughs> yeah. When you say interesting in in quotes as mm-hmm. it were, what was derailing you? I think listeners would be amazed to hear that someone at your level would walk into a room and still feel that way. So can you, I know it's a while ago now, but can you talk about that? Like what you're remembering when you say that? Um, you know, I remember being, I was filled with anxiety, but I think I was feeling anxiety for a lot of different reasons. Um, working on something while auditioning is always an interesting um combination of feelings I think because you're so ingrained in the work you're already doing and you're right. to get out of that in order to to come up with an idea for something that you might want to work on um and and those Anita and and Alyssa Green are inherently two very different people right um, so I felt a lot of anxiety of trying to you know comb through all of those um, behavioral distinctions. And I also think I was beginning to feel the weight of the importance of the work. You know, I'm working on West Side Story and what that is, iconic, historical, uh, beautiful reputation or beautiful um, telling of a, retelling of a piece that I think is very important to us, especially right now. And also taking on the, the the responsibility of portraying a young African American LGBTQ plus identifying girl who's not out. I was like, this is heavy. Everything feels so heavy all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not afraid of a challenge. I just think, you know, you walk the walk and and talk the talk, and sometimes you just get afraid of it. You get afraid of succeeding sometimes. Think that's really what it is. I think I was starting to get, be become fearful of success in a way, because when you succeed and you succeed on that level, it's amazing and fantastic. But it comes with a different set of problems and also a different set of responsibilities. Uh, and and it's all wonderful, but it 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 does uh, it carries a weight. That makes sense. And and so, first of all, just switching lanes like that, even if the other project you were reading for was like a commercial, right? Like just trying to switch lanes at all when you're so immersed in something, as you were saying, is really hard. Was Ryan Murphy in the room when you went in that first time? No, 
he was not. It was just a general, a general audition, a general reading. I did my thing. And um, honestly, I thought I inherently disagreed with the casting director at the time <laughs> about what she was asking for. But again, you know, I I go in and I just I make the adjustments. I play around. I do the best I can. Um, in fact, I was crazy enough to try and sing a Whitney Houston song. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> well, that always sounds nice to me. There's oh. nothing crazy about that. I would I would pay a lot of money to hear you sing a Whitney Houston song anytime. Oh, oh bless. That's an I'm I'm very honored. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, if anyone could, but you just went for it and it just felt like it was not being received with love. At the time, I think so. Yeah. Also, yeah. Think casting directors inherently have the responsibility of having a poker face. I know. You know? I hate that. Yes. And when we're friendly, and I think you and I are that, like I'm an extremely friendly person and I'm cupcakes and sprinkles and rainbows combined when I'm auditioning or is trying to be that. Um, so you get nervous when it's not, you don't think it's being received. <laughs> right. Somehow that audition that didn't feel good at all for, for all the reasons you've shared and more, um, mm -hmm. ended up coming back your way. Yeah, it did. I, um, I don't, like I said, sometimes things are, I think things are just predestined. What is it? Flight says divine choreography. Um, and I think that was definitely one of those moments in my journey, for sure. Um, and I went back in and I did meet with Ryan and I read. Um, he was merciful enough to not make me sing again. <laughs> and um, He had faith that what could happen yep. on yep. the day. <laughs> on the day I delivered. Yeah. But we just... Mm -hmm conversation we talked and he asked me a few questions and we talked about um, you know having a woman of of color as uh Alyssa's mother and whether I thought it was important um especially I think if, if you know the show the prom um you you could choose to see Mrs. Green as somewhat of a villain and I said to him, and I feel very passionately about this, um, that I think it's not about race. I think it's about being a parent because parents ultimately want what's best for their child. And that's what they believe that they're fighting for every day. Um, and right. sometimes they get lost along the way, but that doesn't mean they don't love their children. So it's like, it's less about... Right. It's less about finding a woman of color and more about finding someone who is a parent. And I think he really heard me when I said that. And I think I might have shocked him because I have a baby face. I look like I'm 12, despite not being 12. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it yeah. Was, that, that was sort of what started what I'm, I'm, I believe to be a really good working relationship with him. And then all of a sudden, Kerry Washington entered the picture and you know, where the rest will be history at some point when the world gets to see it. <laughs> when you talked about this audition, you were still in the middle of filming West Side Story, which has been really one of the most talked about projects um, coming down the pike. Tell me when you think about West Side Story, what are the thoughts and feelings that come up for you in a kind of stream of consciousness sort of way? West Side Story, um, iconic, uh, race-driven. Um, I think the importance of the fact that it is a um, a film that is ultimately about love, but love in the face of uh, division and and violence uh, and you know racial prejudice. Uh, it's it's ironic because while it's not about necessarily whites against blacks, you are talking about two um, two groups of people. Um, one is you know Puerto Rican migrants, and the other group is ultimately white immigrants or you know uh, 
the children of of uh, of immigrants from you know uh, Ireland and 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 and, 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 and Italy and all of these uh, first and second generation, but first generation, first generation. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and so he's talking about groups of people who have been displaced, and he's talking about groups of people who have fallen, um, kind of in the margins. You know, it's interesting. And that would be my grandmother's phone. It's going really well. <laughs> I like it. Answer the phone. <laughs> it makes it so real. Anything that makes me feel like I'm with you at your house is the happiest making feeling. Yep. <laughs> and she was like, good. I'm so sorry. She has the cutest little face right now. Um, but I digress. Uh, what was I saying? Um, you're talking about people who have fallen fallen through the cracks, right? Tony Kushner and and Stephen like to talk about it being, you know, West Side Story. Like, there's a reason why it's called Side Story because it is a side story. It's the the story of these people. It's not what you read about. It's not what makes headlines, or at least back in the day, it didn't. Right. Right. Um, so. I think when you really look at this story and you look at the truth of it, you see groups of people who inherently want the same thing, but who can't see past the small details, right? Um, yeah. And I think we're looking at that very thing right now. <laughs> yes. It's really, really interesting to see how history repeats itself because my mother's a history teacher and I inherently believe that um, history is cyclical. When you don't learn your lessons as a society, the same things keep coming back up. Um, so, you know, it, it was a really fascinating process to be able to tell the story again through, you know, new eyes. You know, you have a whole new generation of Latinx artists infusing life into the sharks. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 I I focus more on their story, not only because I played Anita, but because that was the most compelling part to me, um, to see how we could really infuse bits and pieces of the truth as opposed to making a, a sparkly musical. Um, how do you you bring out the truth of what they were living um, in nineteen fifty seven? And throughout through 1961, I think that's so interesting and important to be able to kind of put that Hamilton spin on it. You know what I mean? Yes. America now told by America um, or <laughs> telling the story of America then. Yes. Um, because that's the point of of art, you know, is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Or that's what I believe art can allow us to do is to put ourselves in other people's sh shoes to become empaths to to feel what they feel and i do believe that this adaptation and and uh what tony's done with this script really brings new life to that hope so tony kushner pulitzer prize winning extraordinary playwright um <laughs> steven spielberg um what they are are two of our most brilliant living artists, but they are both white Jewish men. Mm -hmm. um, so how, how you know, with their own experiences, and obviously Tony Kushner has been an activist for LGBTQIA plus rights and very vocal. Um, his plays, his play Angels in America, you know, changed theater. Um, right. But how do they uh, at at sort of the helm of this project, and obviously there are choreographers and designers, and and it's so layered in a big movie like this. But when they begin working with a cast, uh, hopefully with great sensitivity, um, how how do they address the fact that they are not writing about their own experience or directing their own experience? Um, and how did they begin a dialogue so everyone, if in fact this was true, felt safe to talk about? their experience, their real experience on this project and in life. 
Right. Um, such a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I will say, I'll tell you, they, they handled it, uh, head on. There was not a moment, even in our, in our collective audition processes mm-hmm. that we didn't feel like that was being addressed. You know, one of the first things Stephen said to me was I'm Jewish. <laughs> I empathize, but you know, and I love this story so much. I want to make sure that it's told in an authentic way. And, you know, you can see that desire reflected in how he chose to cast the piece, you know. Um, but ultimately, once we started this process, it's like every care was taken in order to make not only, you know, the actors feel included, but to make sure that there was um, the right uh, resources at, at our disposal, both for for the creative team and our and us as uh, as artists and um, they brought in people who lived in the community at the time uh, to speak to us about what that was really like um, you know we were given books we were given um, it felt like we had our very own personal TED talks at times wow. with folks who uh, who are you know essentially experts mm-hmm. on, on Puerto Rican culture and what it was to be to be a migrant in 1957, um, really, really fascinating stuff. And, and I will say, you know, I'm, um, half Puerto Rican. Um, and I didn't grow up with that half of my, uh, of my background available to me. Um, so this process taught me so much about myself and where I come from. So from, from a personal standpoint, it's like I was getting, such a full education in addition wow. to being allowed to make great art. Wow. Um, can, can you tell me, I mean, Steve, I mean, uh, iconic. I know that when I've had the privilege of like sitting in an audience um, where, and he happens to be there on the same night, people mm-hmm. are really distracted. I wonder if you could just talk about what it was like to actually work with him and, and what are ways that you like things that are going to stay with you forever um, because you've worked with him. Yeah. What are things he says when you come in an audition and how does he make you feel comfortable? You know, he's just, here's the thing about Steven. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. He's just a nice man. Mm-hmm. You know, once you can get past the like, oh my God, he made E.T. Yeah. yeah. We have, you know, Jurassic Park because of him. <laughs> right. you know, once you can get past. I'm scared to go in the ocean because of him. There are lots of ways he's impacted me. Oh my gosh. Like he's, he's had such a, a hand in our culture and the way yeah. we do film. You know, cinema yeah. is important to me. As a, as a result of films I watched that I didn't know he made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has a hand sort of everywhere. But once you can get past that, he's just a good man. Mm-hmm. He's got a really good heart. And he leads with that when he's directing. He's an actor's director because he really does want to kind of let you run wild. And yes, he's specific. I did my homework before I ever walked in the room to audition with him. And what did that mean? I watched that there's a great documentary about him. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. And I watched it and something stuck out to me about when he was making Schindler's List with um, Liam Neeson. And he wanted a shot of him taking a drag of a cigarette. And he had something so specific in his brain and Liam wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Liam. And, uh and I was like, man, this is really not going well for him. And, you know, you watch an actor try to give him what he wants, but then you're also watching a great actor who's like, I'm being given a line reading, essentially. Yeah. And I'm beginning, it seemed, um, what he was trying to communicate was that he's like, I'm beginning to get offended by it. And I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. All yeah. right. Um, so that's challenging. So he's very specific. He knows what he wants. Um, so I'm going to have to 
you know, navigate that if, mm-hmm. if this comes to fruition. And I have been through some, you know, rehearsal processes where I am, I was, I've been hired to do a job to bring a character to life. And then I get in the room and I'm very quickly, I very quickly realize that I don't actually get a say in what my character does. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. And I'm, I'm, I'm an actor, I'm a woman of color, and I'm queer. So I'm a double minority. <laughs> yes. And you're not just talking about times you've come in to replace in a show. You're right. talking about there to create a character. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's awful. Um, it, yeah. It's not, it is not a good feeling. Um, and so I, I knew that having had those experiences, having watched this documentary, that going into audition for a man like this, that I, I wanted to represent myself well, but I'm also not a pushover. So then my challenge becomes, how do I get him to hear me and understand that I will show him the utmost respect? But I also, I wasn't at the time when I was auditioning for him, I was not in a place to allow a character like this that was so close to my heart and that I really had a felt that I had a real grasp on and something to offer, something that was different. Um, And, you know, how do I get him to hear that without becoming angry or feel like I'm challenging his authority? Because I'm never coming from that place. But you always, you know, these are things we're talking about now in the wake of the world that we live in. It's like, you know, tone is a thing. How do you present something in a non-threatening way that can be heard? Um, but it's, 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 and it's, it's important to, to speak up. You know what I'm saying? We are the most popular house in North Carolina. I swear. Well, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, Nana's going to answer the phone real quick. Hold on. I want to hear Nana. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Popular, really, really popular. Wait, is she in the room right next to you? No, she's in, she's actually. I'm in her bedroom, oddly okay. enough, and okay. she's in the bedroom that I grew up in. <laughs> Watching is this is this the farm? Is this a farm? Um, no, we actually we sold the farm a couple of years ago. So, um, and that was more of like the country space. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yes, you do. You did do your homework. You know about the farm. I did. I did because it was part of your. So you think you can dance intro yes. uh, to the world, and you on a tractor, and your grandpa, and that must feel like a lifetime ago. It does. It was a solid decade ago. I am a yes. different human. Yes, <laughs> but my God, I mean, talk about what you have, how you have grown. Yeah. Not just the the legacy of the work, but kind of, you know, how you have not just found your singing voice, right? But like what you're talking about right now, which is I'm not going to be that person anymore who just shuts down to please. Right. You know, and I think um, it's really interesting. Uh, I have a very specific uh, life experience. You know, I'm uh, multiracial um, and my mom's white and I was raised by the white side of my family. So for the longest time, you know, I, I literally, and I know people don't like this phrase, but it's my truth. I was raised to not see color. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, And so I sort of just operated like I loved everyone. And I still operate this way. I see humans. And and I see personalities. And I see their light. I see their darkness. I, I see, you know, the little clouds around them. I see auras. I don't necessarily see their race or or ethnicity first. And I certainly don't gender is like not a thing for me. I just see the person. Um, and it wasn't until I essentially moved to New York City that, you know, the complications surrounding race um, and racial identity um, became a reality to me. 
Um, and that's something that I still struggle with in a way because I, I can see both sides of a story because mm-hmm. of how I was raised. Right. You know, I was like, I was raised surrounded by all different kinds of people with all different kinds of political beliefs. And so for me, in a time like this, it can feel overwhelming um, because I, if you, if you are a person who looks at the world from a black or a white perspective, I fall in a category of gray. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it, it can just be uncomfortable because they're, while I just, I speak to a lot of different things and I'm queer. So, ah, yeah. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead. Um, so there, there's just a lot that's wrapped into that and, and, you know, being empathetic with both communities. It's like, I see accountability in a different way. It's also what makes me a, a makes me good at my job. I think I'm both an empath and, and I see, you know, the accountability through action, um, in regards to my work and in regards to the way that I choose to be an activist, um, in a way that, you know, some others might not quite understand. And even at times it's hard for me to put words to it. Um, but it's, it's the place that I lead from. Right. Cause I'm interested in what brings us all together. I'm interested in people don't like this word right now either. Compromise. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because we are, you know, a society and a country that is built on this idea that we're all allowed to disagree and we're all allowed to worship differently. We're all allowed to be who we want to be. And we're all supposed to still be able to come together under the banner of being American. And that is not necessarily how we're living our lives today. Well, I want to talk about, this might be a strange segue, but I want to talk about Hamilton. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, I've i been thinking a lot about that show now, like mm-hmm. today, um, and what that meant for so many people and the resonance of that show and specifically sort of your place at the center of it. Um, so the bullet as, <laughs> as, um, as you are uh, in that show, you play yeah. the bullet. Um, mm-hmm. Was, was it originally like woman number? Is there a number? Attached I to number three. <laughs> number three. Okay. Um, so I, I haven't spoken to anyone who who was a part of that show um, who wasn't deeply affected by the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you were really central in that play for a character that was a number versus mm-hmm. a historical character. Um, it's also become a very iconic part of that show. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the development of that, because that feels like someone who came in and was like, I have an idea about what to do with this thing and what it could mean. Um, Can you, and and maybe the segue was too big a leap, but something as you were talking made me think of you as the bullet um, and the (laughs) impact of that. Yeah. No, I, I think a lot about Hamilton as well these days. And, um, because, you know, as I'm sure you know, it'll it'll come to Disney Plus on July 3rd. And there's a lot of, you know, thought that goes into, you know, why now? Mm-hmm. You know, and and we, I think they first decided to give it to the world early because of coronavirus. And, right. But now and it's a whole new story. Now it's a whole new story. And I think, um, I think people are going to view it differently, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But your your question I remember being in the room and Andy was like Ari come here okay this is you're gonna come through and you're gonna trace the bullet and I was like I'm gonna what <laughs> you know trace the bullet like you do all right so he showed me sort of an outline 
of what he, you know, basically thought it was. And then the longer I did it, it, it became something else for me. And I began to allow that to trickle into everything else I did in the show. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you in it from the very beginning? Yeah, I did. I did. Even before it was a thing, I had done some readings with um, a very small group of people. And I remember Christopher Jackson was there. Daniel Watts was there. Uh, My gosh. I think Nikki James was there at one point. I love all those people. Yeah. So love bugs, every single one of them. Yes. Um, we, were, we were just helping them hear the music that they were working on at the time. And, and you know who's got you knew them from Bring It On because Lynn yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, that was that. In fact, I was working on Motown the musical when they first called me to come and like just sing and have some fun and learn some songs or whatever. Right. Um, so it had been that long that I uh, that Hamilton and I had been circling each other. Wow. Uh, and then at the time when they were going into like starting to do official readings and developmental labs and things like that, um, I knew that I wasn't really right for, uh, or what I believe they were looking for in the Schuyler sisters, but I just had this feeling that it was going to be really important that I stay with it. So I did. Um, and I do you remember what you thought about the the music and the lyrics and the whole concept the first time you heard it? Oh, I thought it was brilliant. Okay. There was something in it. There was a rhythm about it, like there was an urgency to it that you couldn't stop listening. And then you know uh, the the words um, that were the way that they hit you. They hit you so viscerally, um, and it was tangible because you were hearing. Uh, melodies that were somewhat familiar because they, you know, he was inspired by nineties hip hop. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, it, it made it really tangible for folks like me, but then I, the one, the more that they were describing what they wanted to do with it, I was like, there's such opportunity for lots of different people from all demographics to connect with this. My own grandmother who's 73 years old connected with Hamilton. And yeah. she's not really a fan of rap, right. <laughs> but she got that and she understood this piece and it moved her. She was so happy and so proud of me. Um, almost more, more proud of me that I was in Hamilton than any other thing I've done. <laughs> because of what the piece is holistically. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And she liked that everyone was represented on the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, like that she saw so many different types of people. Um, and it, it, you know, I think that's what was so interesting about playing the bullet is that I represent, if you know anything about me, what I represent is so many different types of people. So you get to an iconic moment like that in that, like that moment in, in the show. And I am the angel of death, but I'm the angel of death who is embodying a bullet who is brown, who is biracial, who is a woman, you know, she's all of these things, you know, it's, it, it, it's loaded. It's such a, it's a political statement without being a political statement when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. And, and I know that I felt that very viscerally. Um, I don't know that the creative team agreed with me at the time, <laughs> but they certainly <laughs> allowed it to grow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so it was, um, it was, can you talk about what you mean by that? Like we laugh and we know what that is when someone kind of fights for something or keeps growing the moment, um, even if it's not in the original, you know, architecture of the piece. Um, so when we smile about that, what does that mean specifically? Well, you know, I think, I think creatives, have an idea for they have a vision for the piece and sometimes it's hard for for them to you could call it a control thing I think um to to give up a little bit of control of their vision to allow the vision to be amplified in a way maybe that's the wrong word but maybe it's okay um maybe it's the right word maybe it's the right word um yeah you know I I 
I took Andy's initial idea and I ran with it. And I think sometimes that's a really good thing for some creative teams. And sometimes that doesn't really work. And I'm not speaking specifically just about this team. I mean, in general. Sure. Um, but I, I was lucky to find myself in a moment where, although that might not have been their initial intention, I think after a while, once they gave me the opportunity to talk about it with them a little bit, they saw that it had value and merit. Um, so then they didn't, they didn't try to stifle that in any way. And then it was so lovingly received by an audience. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I think once they really, once we finally got, um, an audience, I think that they found that it was neither distracting, um, it was, it was something that enhanced the piece. Um, in a in a subtle way, because you know, I also I'm really I'm a big believer in in playing your part in service to the story. Right. I exactly. had as an artist felt like what I was doing was in service to the piece, then I wouldn't have done it. You know what I mean? I think we're, we're all artists should play and try new things, but ultimately, what stays and what sticks in in your personal show eight times a week is what is in service to the piece. And it's hard because actors can be, we can become very self-absorbed and like, well, this feels good to me, but what feels good to us isn't always what is necessary in telling the story and making the, the important parts land. When you talk about, you know, sort of West Side Story and, and the sort of TED Talk world that was brought to you in order to really authenticate, if that's a word, the experience, and and so that everyone felt comfortable in the ways that you sort of um, nodded to earlier. When yeah. you're doing Hamilton, which also come, you know, these are real people, um, there's there's fantasy and, and things, you know, there weren't just sisters in the Schuyler family, right? Like all right. the things that we know historically to be true that weren't necessarily helpful for the play you were putting on, um, how much room was there for everyone to kind of enhance, collaborate, talk about, well, my character, this feels like, was there a lot of sitting around and doing table work at the beginning on the book of the show? Are you speaking about Hamilton? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you for a while, it felt like there were two rooms. Mm. Because we, the the ensemble had the responsibility of creating an entire world of dance. And we couldn't do that at the same time that we were in a room with the actors. I think they took, potentially took the idea that the two worlds needed to be separate until they came together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't know that it was the easiest process because it certainly had its challenges once we did finally come together because the things we were executing from the jump were inherently very dangerous um because we're we're dancing with you know speed agility we're lifting props over our head i'm twirling a you know a wooden very heavy rifle you know i'm throwing sliding all over the the place i'm literally you know, fighting a choreographic war. Um, and when you when you do separate the worlds, you have a room full of actors who have, you know, done the table work and talked about all those things that you were mentioning. Yeah. And they've they've done the work in that way. And we did our work in a different way. We did it from right. a, a, a place of physicality. A, we worked from a place of body language and trying to understand well, how did their corsets affect them um, at the time for the women in particular? What did the dress of the day do to their bodies? And how how can we dance in clothes like that and and still still do our jobs effectively without hurting ourselves? We just had a we were both both groups of people were doing great work. We were just doing it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well <laughs> I mean I mean you are, you were a part of the original cast of Hamilton, and that brings us to the fact that it's about to be something that's accessible globally. 
um, yeah. not just the people who are lucky enough to see it in the theater. And so to go back to your point of when you sort of fantasize about what it might mean when it airs now, post-pandemic, but during this really, uh, the moment of Black Lives Matter, right. um, which this will always be known as, as history <laughs> plays itself out and tells the story of this moment, Um do you have a thought about what it means uh, contextually? I think that, I think people are going to hone in on what revolution looked like on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it'll be interesting to see their response to that. Yeah. Um, my, my hope is that it's, a reminder to keep going, to keep moving forward, to keep demanding change. Um, revolution is messy, but now is the time to stand. Um, that those are really important words, I think, for us as a as a nation, as a group of people, right now. Yes, um, it's it's hard. You know, I don't know. I have no idea. In fact, we had a. We had a cast Zoom call the other day, and none of us really know what's going to happen. We all have great hope that the show will continue to speak. And I'll be honest, listening to the lyrics, it means something different to me now than it did when I was doing it. Um, and and I think that's kind of the that's the mark of a masterpiece. It something becomes timeless when it doesn't matter. When you hear it, you find something new and something even more prolific than you did the time before that, that you heard it. Um, so I think ultimately we'll, we'll, we shall see. Right. <laughs> it's a right. great thing to think about. But I know. I know. Um, moving on to uh, a very joyous thing that happened to you. Um, you may not know this, but you were nominated for a Tony Award. I hope I'm not. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Oh, no. Really? Yes. Yes. Yes, you were. And it was not actually for The Bullet. It was for playing Disco Donna uh, in a musical um, celebrating Donna Summer. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you can talk about what that is to have that actually happen. Did you know, like, when this came to you, where you're like, oh, this might be the culmination of all the things that I do? Oh, yeah. I read I read the audition sides because at that time there was no script. And uh-huh. I knew. And I, I was like, I got to go in for this and I'm going to fight for it. Um, but I just, I think I'm a very intuitive person, um, especially when it comes to work. <laughs> Uh, which I find really weird. Yes. But, um, would it be great if you had it in every aspect of life? That oh. would be. <laughs> Relationships, no problem. No yeah. problem. Like that would be so great if I could Got just it. You know, have a golden snitch that just yes. went off every time I needed to walk away. Yeah. Um, if If you end up finding like what the recipe for that is, please share it. Well, we I really appreciate that. I will. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I I had a, my gut just was screaming that I needed to go in and I needed to fight for it. And I did. And it wasn't. What does that mean, fight for it? Well, I, at the time, and looking back on it, I actually think I had more allies than I realized. Uh-huh. Um, but I, at the time was, I was finishing up my run in Hamilton and it, Towards the end, it had become tumultuous for me because I had suffered um, several injuries. Uh, I had, I was actively healing from that and trying to figure out, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to dance the same way. So I've got to become stronger in all these other areas. Um, so I've been training and I, I inherently feel like because I had taken this path in the ensemble for a while that I was going to have to fight a little harder than other women to be taken seriously as a viable lead actress. 
And so inherently it's that idea that like, I have to go in and be better than everybody else so that I'm just undeniable. Um, and, and, and so I, I went in and I had a very clear idea of who this person was and how to channel her. And I was very adamant that I did not want to impersonate her. And I went in and I, I danced half of my audition. Like I just created my own stuff in regards to um, the scene work. So my scene work was, you know, part dance, part just reading the lines and telling the story. Um, and I, I'm pretty darn sure no one else did that. <laughs> right, right. So when I'm I go sure in, not. Yeah, so when I go in and I fight for a part, I come in with a really clear idea of what I want to do. And I try to give the team a taste of, of that and how I want to work. And I try to engage them in a way that, you know, they, that they knew what they were getting and that I was strong and that I could lead, but I could take direction and I could be vulnerable. I was trying to show them, um, that I could do all of the things that they needed. Um, Wow. And was this already like set for Broadway or, or did you not even know yet it would be coming in for sure? I didn't know that it would be coming in for sure. I had a feeling that it would simply because it was produced by Dodger Properties and Tommy Mottola, um, who if you don't know who Tommy Mottola is, he's responsible for some very amazing pop artists like, you know, Mariah Carey. And he's very influential in Celine Dion's journey to stardom. So I was like, all right, I don't think this man <laughs> would sign on to anything that he doesn't intend to see through. Sure, so, sure. You know, and there were resources, there were resources to combat whatever reviews or anything along the way that might not have immediately picked it up with love, if that oh, were to have happened. Yes, exactly. And you know what? And to be perfectly honest, I will level with you. I got panned. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? No one has any memory of that. And that, read reviews? I don't anymore. Yeah. Um, um, I read uh-huh. that, and this is why I don't read, read reviews anymore. I believe it was in Variety. And the woman that <laughs> reviewed the show said I was the dullest thing she'd ever seen on stage. And I was like, that hurts. And it's also completely untrue. So I'm going to walk. Right. right. Um, yeah. But that's it. That's why I just try to continue to go back to what are my roots, Ari? What do you know to be true about humans? Everybody's got a different perspective. Everybody's got an opinion and they're entitled to that opinion. It is your inherent right as a human to disagree with them and move on. Um, so that's why I don't read reviews. <laughs> but you read that one. Was that an out of town review or was that the Broadway well, review? That was on Broadway. They love you in California. (laughs) Well, they love you everywhere. Uh, This woman was obviously had been lobotomized and then she wrote a review and then they realized the next day that she needed to be hospitalized. But that's another episode. Um, So you read that, like it's opening night, you're at the party, it's the greatest thing. And then the reviews come out. And do you like go home and read it that night and then have to process that and go in the next day? No, I didn't. I did not do. I had a feeling that we weren't going to, to get a lot of love. And I had peace with that Mm -hmm. Um, because ultimately at the end of the day, it's not my job to make reviewers like me, right? Like the job as a doctor is to go in every day deliver a compelling story and make the people feel something that they didn't know they could feel. And that was my goal. And I knew I was doing that because people were leap. They leapt to their feet at the end of the show. We were up in their feet dancing. Um, And that's how I knew I was doing my gig. Um, I think we have, we're in a, or were in a moment on Broadway where, you know, there's the difference between commercial art and high art. You know what I'm saying? And, Everybody wants a little something different, um, but there has to be a place for every style of art, every style of show. Um, and it's hard to review it if you are someone who has a very specific taste. That's right. 
you know, so that's why I, I take things with a grain of salt. And my audience, those are the people that I care about. Was her family, were were members of Donna Summer's family involved or did they come? Did you meet them, um, talk to them? They were very involved in the entire process. Her husband, oh, wow. yeah, her husband, Bruce, um, or her widower was, was there every step of the way and was so supportive. Um, and her daughter, Brooklyn Sudano was also there every step of the way and, um, held my hand, held Storm's hand, LaShawn's hand through, through challenging days or, you know, just encouraged us to keep digging and to keep trying to find the truth and the joy. Because I think if you, if you look at Donna's story, um, there, she was never without challenge, you know, whether it was someone challenging her talent or challenging her ability to, to be a success or, you know, just people would come at her and be like, well, you're not behaving like you're actually black. You know what I'm, things like that. She was always met with, with that type of um, pushback. And you know what? That's been my journey as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's why I was so adamant about, you know, trying to do my part to tell the best story that we could um, for her. You know, it's like, the reality of success is that it's never going to look like what you think it's supposed to. Um, and, and her story is a testament to that. And that's something that Bruce told me, you know, it's, it, it was, it was hard, especially towards the end to do anything right, you know, within the public eye and yes. public acceptance. Yes. Their and, expectations and they're never being pleased. Right. And we see more and more of that every day. Um, and I'm very aware of it and sensitive to it as well. So I think it's, um, it was, I'm so glad I had the experience of making that show and performing that show and getting to know her family because they taught me so many lessons that I carry with me now as I'm, you know, moving through this next part of my career and, you know, coming up on, and on trying to, to promote and talk about these these two films that are really important to me and in light of, of Hamilton being given to the world as well, it's, it's important to keep all of those things in mind that everyone is, you know, going to have an opinion. They're going to have an expectation. And sometimes you cannot meet expectations that you are not aware of. Does that make sense? Yes. And so how are you, you know, you are a rising star you are starring in these huge projects. You have moved from what feels like, you know, when you're on 46th Street, you're like, we are the center of the world. I mean, you have been in six theaters, some, maybe some repeatedly. I mean, your Broadway career already, had you just decided to stay put, um, was on quite a track. And you have achieved what very few people have, right? I mean, on so many levels. Um, Now you have become like a film star also, big and small screen. And I'm sure you're with a very fancy agent and you have press people and, you know, management and a lot of people wanting things from you. Yet when I talk to you, I am humbled by your humility and your um warmth and uh I don't know like incredible normalness while you <laughs> while you um and, I mean, and, so happy <laughs> yes and like with you know I don't know if you call her Nana or grandma um what do you call your grandmother um I call her Nana oh my god she would kill okay, me so called her grandma. <laughs> okay. So with Nana's phone ringing somewhere in North Carolina, um, what is it uh, that, what is it at your core? I'm, I'm feeling like I'm wowed by your confidence and your, your understanding of like what you can do, what you're capable of. I think about, you know, my husband was an athlete before he became an actor, and I see he still operates in the world like an athlete. There's yeah. a kind of zone he gets into 
um, and yet is still capable of creating really beautiful art, even though there's like an athlete zone. And right. so I wonder as a dancer, which is where you began at three and haven't stopped, um, <laughs> is it like, is it that kind of physical ownership of your body? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I have a feeling that, you know, my love of dance will be the through line of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak dance. It's my first language. I speak it better than I speak English. Dance taught me how to understand myself physically um, and emotionally. I process emotions very physically. Um, and it taught me how to connect with other people without words. Um, and I think that's where a lot of how I see the world uh, comes from. It, it drives my perspective. I I can see what someone's wearing on their body through their physicality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably my superpower. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's um it's cuz it's a very personal thing dance you know what i mean like physical touch is a very very intimate thing um so when you're partnering with a person you know every move of their shoulder even how they move their fingers it tells you something and so when you when you get down to the nitty gritty discovery of what someone says through, with their body it's um it doesn't take much to make a profound impact and does your confidence in the world in some ways come from knowing that you have that superpower, that you have this special gift? Yeah, I think so. I think I um I think yes and mm-hmm. <laughs> the privilege of being raised by confident women. And I think there's a I have a confidence in my own femininity. And my own strength that was nurtured from a very young age. Um, And I have been brought up amongst a village of people who are outspoken. And so I've never been afraid of what the ramifications of my speaking out could be. Because I watched so many figures in my life take stands or fight for themselves and and have to deal with consequences of that. Sometimes it worked out great. Sometimes it didn't right. for the folks. Um, so I had a, I have a really good understanding of that inherently. Um, so I think my confidence comes from my experiences as a child, and from knowing who I am. Like, and I and part of knowing who you are is knowing that you're going to change, right? Yes. yes. I think people miss that sometimes. Um, you know, I come across folks in this business who are like, well, I've da 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 for however many years, and they don't acknowledge the tectonic shifts that they've been through. Um, it's like, I feel like sometimes we get stuck as humans operating from a place that doesn't serve us because we're stuck at how we were behaving when we were 25, and yet now we're what? 32 or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there's a lack of acknowledgement of how we've changed. Well, that's fear, right? I mean, I think that's fear. Yes. Yes. And I, in fact, I have a tattoo on my body that says fear less with a capital L. Well, so much for a little known fact. (laughs) We got one. I mean, I don't know. I was going to ask you before we closed if you had a little known fact, but I feel like retroactively, we're good. Yep, I gave it to you. <laughs> before we go, is there another little known fact? Is there another tattoo? Um, yeah, I I have several actually. Um, let's see. Little known fact: I have a bluebird on the back of my neck. Oh, I love birds. Yeah, I do too. And I, I, I chose that because to me it's a symbol of blind faith. Because faith is a bluebird that you see from afar. It's as real and as sure 
as the first evening star. You can't touch it or buy it or wrap it up tight, but it's there just the same, making things turn out right. Rufus Wainwright. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. All right. This has been, um, man, this is the bomb I needed today. And thank you for spending this time with me and my listeners. What an honor, sweet friend. Ah, uh, This has been such a pleasure for me. I am thrilled we finally were able to make it happen. And on a day where I feel like we just need... A phone call from my grandmother's friends yet again. <laughs> Nana uh, is the most popular human. I can't be tender and oh, and talking over the phone. Oh my god, Nana! Uh, I really want Nana to say hello, but I understand that she's very busy. Um, she is, apparently, I didn't know she was going to be this busy. Um, but like I was saying, I needed this. We needed this. We need more of exactly. It is that you do, which is bring people together and let them share, you know? So thank you for letting me share. That's the important thing right now, I think. It's my pleasure. All right. Until next time, sweet friend. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.